Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond special multi-part series under the covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your hosts, John Sarabian and Mark Lahorn, are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. Today, we're going to be talking to Ernie about all his album covers over the years and how he came up with the ideas, and he'll even tell us some of his favorite and least favorite album covers. Yeah, no, uh, let's uh, hear about some of these 250 album covers that you yeah. have you know, designed over the years. You've been doing this for a long time, and you know, you've really made a mark in the music industry. Yeah, you know, Ernie, I, I've been wondering about this, and you know, all of the album covers you did, you started somewhere, and when you first started, what's the conversations like, and who's approaching you versus you approaching them? Well, it kind of works both ways. In the beginning, um, in the very beginning, I approached them, or we approached them, we being either the agency I was working for at the time or Pacific Pioneer. The good news about approaching them was that when I did Jesus Christ Superstar and a few of those other albums there, Matthew Southern Comfort and a few of these other albums, I worked for a company and they were on retainer with Decca Records. So the first project was Jesus Christ Superstar. After that, the creative director at Decca Records, a guy named Bill Levy, kind of, we hit it off really well. And, and the funny thing is that he was really friends with the two guys that had left the agency I was working for and starting their own agency. He was going to take the account and go over there with it because they, they figured that they could, you know, drop Norman Levitt and get, get it away without any kind of problems and contractual issues. I think that was part of their plan. And then the Jesus Christ Superstar, it all changed. So instead of us going and pitching him, he would call us and say, you know, I've got some more projects, come on in and we'll go over them all. And and the same thing kind of happened with Pacific Pioneer. You know, we sought Lou Adler out. We sought Shep Gordon out. We didn't know those people, but the work that we were promised never materialized. We were supposed to get all this work for a from A&M Records. It never happened. By this time, we had bonded, and my partner was a really great salesman. He was frustrated as well because a lot of promises were made to him in ownership and stuff in the agency percentages. It was all just not real. I mean, you know, he was told by the guy we worked for that he was going to get all this stuff, and he sent them the contract. You know, it was just this really scumbag kind of way of making you think you're getting something. Tony was a really good person, a person that really cared and always tried to do the harder right. The harder right is always harder to do. That's why they call it the harder right. That's how he was wired. And I was kind of the same way. You know, I wanted to do things differently than the way we were forced to do them. And coming together that way, we both agreed that that's what we wanted. And we started to guy near. And then it was kind of funny because we sought out Chef Gordon. We sought out Lou Adler. And then after that, when, when we left and started Pacific Pioneer, they sought us out. Tony would make a few calls, but mainly it was the groups and mainly it was Shep Gordon and Alice Cooper um, and their influence in the industry that got us a lot of business. I, I always say Shep Gordon was probably the best salesperson we ever had, you know, and, and, and all Tony had to do was answer the phone at a certain point, which was really kind of nice because we were like on a roll and people were seeking us out. The fact that we were doing high profile work. You know, Alice Cooper, Cheech and Chong, all these people were really black Sabbath. All these groups were really hot at the time. And, you know, we just happened to be in the right spot at the right time. Some of them not as hot. Doors, Jefferson Airplane certainly weren't what they were years earlier, but they were still well known and they were still industry icons, even at that point. 
Uh, and so having the, their business as well, you know, was really kind of amazing because I never really thought, you know, I was always a huge fan, never thought that I'd ever help them with their image and their brand and, you know, and the fact that a lot of them are still using it to this day. It was kind of a, a, a both ways, Mark. It, it worked at one point, it worked one way and then it uh, turned around. And at one point, I mean, after the first year or so, we were on the map, man. I mean, people were coming to us. There weren't that many companies like Pacific Island here. There were probably three or four. And in Europe, there was hypnosis. You know, they were the guys that did all the Pink Floyd. And, and mainly their covers were photographic. And our covers were more illustrative because the industry was moving from the perfect album cover that a record company wanted to see was a picture of the individual or the group with their name at the top. And everything up, you know, in the top third of the album so that when it set the record bin, people could see the name and the title first. So that was a perfect album cover. And we came along and we're creating all this crazy stuff because the groups had more control now. It was kind of odd for them. And, and they really tried to take as much business away from it as, as they could. Uh, but luckily, the groups really had more say than the record company. The record companies used it as bait to get that group or that individual to sign to their label. Mm -hmm. So they would give them all these rights, you know, and it ended up backfiring on them. And by 1984, it was all gone. So it kind of worked both ways. And, you know, and like I said, we called on fewer than the ones that called on us. That was like a real indication of the fact that we we're really doing something great. I mean, we never sat back and said, oh, yeah, we, you know, we just did this Black Sabbath cover. We just did this billion dollar baby's wallet or even the Rolling Stones song and, and saying that this is going to be someday iconic and we're going to be famous for it. We never even thought about that. It was a project. It was a fun project because it was easy and we loved doing it. I mean, how hard, how bad could it be? You know, I mean, you're, you're a music fan and now you're working and helping some of these bands that you idolize become even more successful. That's kind of how it came down, you know, and on the album covers, some of them are big, some of them weren't. The, the bigger ones, you know, like the Welcome My Nightmare and the Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, people know those and they know that I've done them. But I wanted to also give a little bit of flavor to some of the other ones. You know, we're looking at Alice Cooper's greatest hits. You know, great album cover, an incredible story. We had talked about that, I think, before, about how we had done this greatest hits, uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre concept. And when we turned it in, the record company said, well, said, well, we can't do this. You've got 14 people on there that are still alive and we could get sued. So the only ones that are alive on the entire front and back and inside sleeve are the group and Bracho Mark. You know, Bracho was good friends with Alice. And so there was this, you know, I'm not going to sue you if you use my image. The record company was really afraid. So we had to go in and change 14 heads on bodies that already existed. And the hard part there and finding celebrities that people would recognize that were dead and they had to be dead and they had to be the same kind of physical look that like you couldn't put, you know, uh, John Wayne on Mickey Rooney's body. You know, it just didn't work. So originally we had Judy Garland dancing with Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney was still alive. So we had to find somebody that was dead and about his same physical. Luckily for us, Alan Ladd was head passed away. Sad for him, but, you know, good for us. So we found we were able to find 14 of them and, and put that on there. So the, there's all these crazy stories. And sometimes you're working with the group. When it came to, I would say, 98% of the stuff that we've done out of the 249 or 50 covers that I've done, very few were done for record companies. Record companies were our competitors. 
You know, they really had their own art departments. They were telling the groups, oh, we'll do it all for free. You get it all for free here. It's like free. It's the most overused word in the English language. I mean, just because it's free doesn't mean it wor it's worth anything. You know, when people think about oh, free, it's going to be worth more than it really is. It's not. You're already paying a bigger price for it anyway. And they're trying to make it look like you're going to get something for what you're paying. You know, I mean, it, it's very deceptive. And that's kind of why I, I think even though I like the corporate work, the music thing was better because it was less deceptive. These musicians are pouring their heart out. They're wearing their heart on their sleeve and they're very vulnerable, just like any kind of person that considers what they do creative in an art. You're, you're out there. You're a target. It can get very cruel. You know, I never realized how strong I was until I was, that was the only option I had. Yeah. So in a way, are you flattered that someone tries to steal your thing, even though you uh, did no. a shitty job? You know, it's funny because I've had it happen. The, the uh, Foo Fighters did a tribute album to the uh, the DGs. Uh, they took my logo and changed the B to a D and it looked like shit. But, you know, they and they called it a tribute so they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. They call it a parody and they can get away with it. And I've done these things. I mean, yeah, they were done a long time ago, but if they're so out of it, why are people constantly ripping them off? You know, I mean, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me, right. you know, sidetrack here, but we're talking about album covers and I've been ripped off more than once and not so much in the corporate world. In fact, in the corporate world, I've actually did a little ripping off myself, you know, but I'm, <laughs> I'm you know, but I'm apologetic, and if I get a cease and desist, I'll do it. And there was never any apology. There was never any asking. And and the odd thing to that is the other side of the coin, Jesus Christ Superstar. I must get three or four requests a year from community theaters, from colleges that are putting on, high schools that are putting on Jesus Christ Superstar, and want to know if they can use my logo. Absolutely, not a problem. You know, give me a credit. And that's what I would have said to these guys. Just give me a credit. You're not funny, but give me a yeah. credit. You know, and, and in a way, they're kind of helping me because I own the artwork. So it, all it's doing is it's keeping it top of mind. You know, I got a, a fan on Facebook sent me, a very good friend and fan sent me a bobblehead, an Alice Cooper bobblehead. Came in a box, a nice, good-sized box. The bobblehead didn't look like Alice Cooper at all. It didn't have the makeup, didn't have anything. But what it did have was the entire back of it that you saw the bobblehead standing in front of was the Welcome to My Nightmare album. Turn on the back, there's no credit, nothing. I mean, I don't want to say anything because Alice and Shep have been very, very good. But in a way, it kind of hurts that they would go ahead and do that without saying, hey, you need to put a credit on there for, you know, certainly have Alice's name there. How about the guy that created all that stuff to yeah. give him a little bit of courtesy and respect, you know, and, and having doing all these different covers. I mean, look at that long John Silver cover back there that becomes the marijuana cleaning box, you know, that here's a, a square album that folds up into a rectangular cigar box, <laughs> you know, doors full circle. It has the zoetrope in it. You know, I mean, I, I, and again, I, to me, that zoetrope package was, it was amazing. It's probably the most amazing album cover I ever did because it totally involves the consumer, the fan, makes them interact with it. And then it shows animation when it's sitting on the top of the record. So it's combining, you know, very primitive animation with their music, you know. And so it was like it was different in a lot of different ways. And, and unfortunately, the album itself didn't get any kind of real credit to it until years later, which happens a lot. You know, people mm -hmm. rediscover it, you know, and that's the, the beautiful thing about doing album covers. 
is that those things will live on forever. You know, every generation rediscovers it. The fact that it's there really gives me the most pleasure of, of anything to know that I've made a mark. You know, Kilroy was here, Ernie was here, and this is what he did. Right. So unlike corporate America, corporate America, you don't really, you know, it's like throwing a bucket of water in the ocean. You know, there's more money in it, but there's more brain damage and there's more <laughs> focus groups and marketing people and strategy people. And, you know, by the time you do something, you're lucky if you can see a piece of it that, was something you originally had because it's been so hashed and rehashed and that never happened in the record business for me mm-hmm. you know it was always be, and i guess a lot of it was because i was dealing with the group and if you make the group happy the record company is just going to go along with it they're not going to fight you know right. so working for a creative director in a record company which i've done is a whole different story because they have the ar guys and they have the marketing guys and you know i don't really get it's like here it is, go ahead and now do your magic to it. Instead of, well, we think we had this meeting and somebody brought this up and we all feel that that's, you know, and, and that's all just bullshit. You know, I mean, you just, as a creative person, you need to have creative input and creative conversations and it doesn't go that way. It's very political. I can only do so many and there's so many other ones. I made a list of like Burton Cummings and Black Oak, Arkansas, Iron Butterfly, Can't Heat and the Turtles and West Bruce and Lang, Mary Travers, Shaanana, Grand Funk Railroad. It just goes on and on and on. And I had to sort of really narrow it down, but I wanted to mention those names. It's like getting an award and you want to give credit to as many people as you can that helped make it possible. And all those groups helped make it possible along with the people that I work with. It was Drew Struzan and Bill Garland and Joe Garnett and Ingrid Hinkie and Dean Marion, David Coleman that added to the creative process. It wasn't just me. I played a role in it. And that's, and a lot of people say, well, you know, the Rolling Stones, you did the Rolling Stones song and John Pache did one and Ruby Mazur did one and this guy, Alan Aldridge with their illustrated Beatles, you know, and it doesn't matter to me whether I'm the chicken or the egg, both were needed and nobody can really say for sure, which one came first. And that was the beautiful thing about the, the gold mine, the recent gold mine magazine article, the way Ivor wrote that, it didn't point a finger to one saying, this is the right. It just presented more than one in one place. And it's never happened before. There's, there's never been John Pache said this and Ernie Shuffler said this, and this guy said that. That's never happened. It's, this guy's over here and that guy's over there. And, and then you get all these people that, I, I was on a, a Rolling Stones blog uh, Ivor gets me on those, and they're, you know, I was like, in the, in, I was like a fly on the wall. And these people are analyzing. First of all, they don't believe that I had anything to do with it. It's changed a bit since then, but I have a date on the sketches that I did when I sold the Stones logo, or Craig did. I had about a week, week and a half, two weeks on my own as a freelancer there to and working out of my house. I did a couple other projects for Craig, but I also did all the finishing on the Rolling Stones stuff, and the artwork and stuff. I did some sketches that I presented to Craig, and we picked the one we wanted, and I put a date on there, okay? And somebody had this whole theory about what that date meant. It was like not, it wasn't the date of when he did it. It was like the number of ideas that he had before he hit to the final one, and, and they, they read this whole thing into it. It was like, oh, my God, you know, I had no idea that I was that brilliant. Yeah. You know, that I would conspiracy <laughs> theory, a, Ernie. Conspiracy it theory. It was a date. And then but they read all this stuff into it. And then you 
you know, I hear some of these people and they're saying, this is how it happened. Really? Well, how old are you? Well, I'm 35. Oh, really? Well, I did this 53 years ago. You weren't even born. Right. So how do you come off saying this is the way it was? And they get very defensive, too. I mean, some of these sites were pretty harsh, you know, but they're mm-hmm. avid Rolling Stones fans. And I'm sure all those groups, I'm sure there's an Alice group. I'm in a couple of Alice's groups and you know, but that that's not different. There's no contention there. There's no, well, somebody else could have done that. And that was the other thing about the Goldmine Magazine article. We He listed a lot of stuff, but there was no controversy about anything in that 20-page article after the Rolling Stones thing that was in the beginning. It was like, I don't know. And after that, it was all like Pacific Ioneer and Ernie Shelton. No question about any of that. Yeah. And it's kind of funny the way this one piece has gone on for so long. And I, I really believe that the Stones like that. They like the controversy. You know, they like the people talking about them. And why wouldn't they? You know, they're the greatest rock and roll band ever. And I don't think anybody's ever going to top it. But you can never say never. But, you know, boy, oh, boy, that's a hard act to follow. It, yeah, it it's true. It's a big piece of your career, and, and I'm sure theirs as well. And it being such a big piece, it, it overwhelms all the other work that you do, a, a lot of the conversations. Looking at the other album covers over the years, is there one that stands out that was such a positive, fun, it just outweighs every other album you did, that the experience working on that project was so overwhelmingly positive and good-natured? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I the first one that comes to mind, there's a few of them. Yeah. The first one that comes to my mind is Burton Cummings' Dream of a Child. That was, it was a triple platinum album. Uh, and Burton had been my friend since 1972 when I did the first Guess Who album that I did, which was Artificial Paradise, which was a, uh, talk about a fun package. The Artificial Paradise package was exactly the opposite of who we were. Okay. We kept trying to make it really good. And it's a junk mailer, it's got to look terrible. So we went, I think it was probably the most fun we had, but it was the hardest one to do because we kept trying to do stuff and it would look good. No, you can't do that. It's got to look like hack stuff because that's what those junk mailers, that's the look they had. So we had to really change the way we thought and typefaces that we picked. I'm very adamant about fonts. And if I don't do hand lettering, I wanted to, a lot of reasons why that font is used emotionally and historically and everything else. It was exactly the opposite. I had to pick the worst face possible. And, and this is the truth. Type houses in those days, because there were type houses. Now every computer has a type house in it. Uh, type houses would give out these big posters that had all the different fonts on them, right? And their name and how you could get a hold of them. And so what we did, because we were having a real problem. We were having a real problem it looking too good. So what we did, we hung up that chart on the wall and we got some darts and we threw the darts at the chart. Whatever font the dart laid on, that's the font we used. Okay. Whether we let, and it was like, oh my God, I, that font, I hate that font. But it's perfect. It's the perfect font we need for that. So there was a lot of fun in that. And the other part was the photographer we used for that was a guy named Laurie Sullivan. He lived with a guy named Jimmy Wattell, whose brother was Waddy Wattell, the guitar player. Okay. And uh, his best friend was Dave Mason, who is. I mean, that guy, Dave Mason, was an amazing artist, singer, incredible. And I met him a few times there. Laurie shared this castle up in the Hollywood Hills with Jimmy Wattell. And Jimmy was just starting getting into the business. He had a company called uh, Orange Storm Graphics or something. And he was doing stuff for Dave Mason for Joe Walsh because of his brother, who his brother was. And he actually hung around 
Pacific Ioneer, we taught him how to kind of do stuff because he didn't really know how to do mechanicals and stuff like that. And Jimmy was cool. And we've actually, you know, talked from time to time still. When we were up there, we did the photo shoot for Artificial Paradise. And Burton didn't really tell any of the other guys in the group what we were doing. So one guy, we dressed up like a chick. Another guy, we had to put him in a monkey suit, you know, and, and they were like, what are we doing? What, what's all this about? Burton never shared anything with them. You know, it was all him and us working together. And they didn't, you know, they just did what we told them to do at this photo yeah. shoot. It was hysterical. The whole thing was just so much fun. It came out really great. I mean, it really looks like a junk mailer. It came in a big envelope that, you know, you pulled all the pieces out just like a junk mailer when you get it in the mail. Right. So that was the most fun. And I think the, the highest high and the most beautiful album that I ever did was Dream of a Child, an incredible album. And we had set that up. I showed him a sketch. He liked it. it was basically taking a big picture of him. I found this little piano, this little toy piano, I painted it blue and I put it in the shot and uh, our secretary had a young son that we used in the shoot and the satin sheet. We set it up in my front room and I didn't understand. It just wasn't working right. We put it all in there and it wasn't working right. And it was a, a short front room and everything's on the floor. And behind us was the front door and there was a window in the front door that had a Venetian blind, a little Venetian blind on it. And it just wasn't working right. It was all lit up. Everything was sitting there. And I turned around and I opened up the Venetian blind. And the sun was in the, a perfect position to throw a shadow in on everything that we're doing that kind of looked like piano keys. It was like this repetitive pattern that threw it across. And it was like, oh, my God, that's it. Shoot it. We shot it. Within a few minutes later, the sun changed. The thing went away. <laughs> it was like this. It was this. And then the, plat, the, the album went triple platinum. And, you know, I have the triple platinum album that Burton gave me, and it was such a simple cover, but yet so beautiful. I mean, it really was. And then we did a similar shot on the back cover with Burton instead of the kid, you know, and, and it was just a, and, and Burton was really, and still is a great guy. We're best friends. I'm working on a new album for him and the second poetry book. Okay, He's got the first poetry book. That sold out immediately. So we're redoing. He was ready to do the second one right before the pandemic happened. The pandemic happened. We put everything on hold. He stopped touring, separated, got a divorce from his wife, lives in Moose Jaw, Canada, which is this little town. He said, Ernie, there's more. There, I've played to crowds 10 times bigger than this city, the town that I'm living in. But he loves it. Good. You know, and he's, he's uh, Carrie, his, his girlfriend and, and significant other now. Is very, she's very cool. Uh, she really gets him to do the stuff that he needs to do. You know, Burton, in a lot of ways, is a lot like a lot of celebrities, rock stars, TV stars, movie stars. They're used to getting everything they want. They get their way, and nobody really tells them anything different. And I got to admit, knowing Burton since 1971, you know, I think for the first time, he's got someone in his life that makes him do the stuff that he doesn't necessarily want to put most importance to or needs to get done. And she gets it done and she gets him to do it. He's happy. She's happy. I'm happy. Everybody's happy. And that's the most important thing, you know, and life, life's too short to not be happy. Uh, I've been able to be happy almost all of my career because I love what I do, you know. And again, you know, starting out on Madison Avenue in the corporate world, when the music thing came along, it was almost like it was an epiphany or something. It, it just was it was meant to be. 
You know, it was meant to be. I was a fan, but I never thought that I could make a career or even have any kind of awareness. I mean, I was a Madison Avenue guy. I needed to be an ad guy. You know, that's how you get and You get a big account and then you maybe become a celebrated creative director, you know. And I, hell, I didn't even know what a creative director was. Until, so I met Bill Levy and he taught me how to do it. I mean, I, I jumped over in the music business in New York. New York gave me the opportunity. I never put a lot of emphasis on titles, but and when I first started out, I mean, it was, you know, you start out as a junior designer and then you become a designer and you have to do some production. So you understand that. I kind of knew that because my last year before I went to New York, I spent a lot of time building a portfolio that I could go to New York with, you know, because you just can't go to New York and get on Madison Avenue with a bunch of school projects. Not going to happen. I spent that year learning about those things that they didn't really teach me in school. Yep. But so- because I was... In the field working, I was exposed to it, and it paid off. You know, it really did. Right. When we started Pacific Ioneer, I did the sketches, the layouts, the design, the production of it, the mechanicals, all of it. We were just three people. It was amazing because we were, we were free. We were free to do what we thought we needed to do and do it the way we wanted to do it, not the way it was dictated to us, which was not something that really was me or Tony. Neither one of us agreed with how we had to be. But that was how the company was run. That's how the owner expected it to be done. And it just, you know, it got to the point where we just, you know, that's not us. I mean, and it's kind of a scary thing. I mean, especially for Tony. I I grew up in Northern California. So California wasn't that odd to me. Tony was grew up in New York. And he was a fish out of water here. You know, and he just, all his connections and stuff, friends and everything were back in New York. And so, and we putting us together and it was like a dog and a cat. You put them in the same room and eventually they may squabble a little but eventually they'll find a common ground and they'll coexist. And that's what we did in that two and a half month period. It took us to decide to come here and do it with all the energy and excitement that we had because we had kind of freedom, but it wasn't really. We were beautiful birds in a gilded cage. Yeah. And, and we didn't really realize how beautiful each one of us were until we were forced to do it together and depend on each other. You know, and I, I and I, I you get that, I guess, in any kind of, you know, military. I was in the army. You know, I, I learned that you really depend on, you know, the, the guy next to you. And when the bullets start flying and you're in that foxhole, you look around and you see who your real friends are. You see, you see who I'm going to be in the foxhole with? You see who I'm going to be in the foxhole with? I know, I know. Well, you know, when you weren't in the foxhole last time, I, we, we waited till you got back in the foxhole. We did. We couldn't yeah, go on you without hold, him. You know, cease fire until Mark gets back in the hole with us. That's absolutely you know? correct. So on the flip side of Mark's comment, was there anything that you did that didn't turn out as good as you thought or that kind of, you know, went over like a lead fire. No, that that never happened. (laughs) We had a nickel for every time it did. I could fill my nose with nickels. It was, yeah, there were instances where you get into something and it's, you know, Jojo Gunn was a good example for me. They were a young group, had a hit, Run, 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 and they were managed by a guy named Art Linson who was turned out to be a pretty important guy in Hollywood and in the music industry. But I got into that and he would sit on my shoulder, you know, and do this. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? 
get out of my office. <laughs> so I threw him out of my office. It was the biggest mistake I ever did because that was the last cover we did for Jojo Gunn. He went on to do all these Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He discovered Kevin Costner, all these different movie stars. I'm sure I could have done more work for him, but maybe not. You know, maybe not. Maybe he would have continued to be one of those guys that sit on your shoulder and trying to direct you. And, you know, I, I just couldn't do that. I couldn't, you know, I knew what I needed to do. You come to me to do something and then you tell me how to do it. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. I mean, why don't you just do it yourself? And I've done that too. I had Paramount Pictures was an account of mine. And the guy who was in a particular division of, because we worked for all the back lot all the different things on the lot, New York Street, we did all the promotion for that when they added it. And there was this one guy who would come over to the office and sit with me and he would bring a sketch pad and pencils. And I would sit right next to me in my day, at my design desk and he would do stuff right along with me. But his stuff was terrible because he didn't know what he was doing. And so finally I had to say to him, look, you know, either you, you want me to do this or you can do it. One of the two. Why don't you just do it yourself? You don't really need me. And uh, that's the last time I worked with him. So, but, you know, there were so, for every one of those, there were 10 that were great to work with. So it, it made it, it balanced it out. Not, there's nothing ever perfect in the world, okay? In your life, there's always going to be, I always tell people like, you know, it's, to me, life has been like drinking punch out of a punch bowl and it's delicious, right? And you're, it's got all this beautiful flavor and, and on your fourth glass, you sort of stir the garni around on top and there's a big turd floating right there and the punch you've been drinking. And that's that's what life is sometimes. So the trick is to move the garni around before you start drinking. Okay, yes. and it took me a while to figure that out. You really got a way of painting a, a great picture for us, Ernie. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's the best way to describe it because that's really what it, you end up going, no wonder it tasted funny. And then you start puking, you know, I mean, it, and I've had some of those. Thank God there haven't been that many bad ones. Most of them are good because they they realize who we are and what we do. I mean, we and we let them know. I mean, there's no, oh, yeah, we can do that. And then we hope we can change your mind as we get into this thing. No, you know, you got to you. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of taking what they come to you. And together you develop something. You move good to great. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I try to do on every project that I do. Moving good to great. And it's 77, going to be 78 in April. I don't have time for that. Right. I don't have time left for that. I, I have. I only have time to do good stuff. You agree that it's good or not, it doesn't matter. If I feel good about it, that's all that matters. Right. In, in album covers, you have what, about 250 of them? 250, yeah. I mean, that's that's amazing. It's pretty wild. Yeah. yeah it's a few. You know, but there are there are art directors and creative directors in record companies that have much more than me. But what they do is every month they get the new releases. So you got 20 releases this month, 30 releases next month. So there's 50 in two months. And all they do is go, okay, Bob, I want you to do this one. And, you know, Fred, you do that one. And Geraldine, you do that one. And, you know, maybe give them a little bit of a, well, I think it could be a photograph or I think it could be an illustration. But that's all they give. And when they get it back, their name is on there as a creative director. You know, that's funny, Ernie, because one of the questions I was going to ask you is during uh, your period of doing album covers in the heyday, were there times where you were working on multiple projects that just took up all your time and they were all album covers? No, because we, we would average the, the minimum uh, album covers we would do is a, a month was four. Oh, wow. Okay. We would, yeah, we would do as many as six. 
But in between those four or those six, we were doing two and three corporate sure, pieces. pieces here and there. We always, you know, we always did. Um, we always had a balance. I have to be able to have variety because variety is fuel for creativity. That's really what create fuels creativity. For me, it's been that way. And early on, when I left the company we were working for, there was a lot of hatred yeah. that I had and animosity that I had. And I was lucky enough to have a wife that taught me how to turn that into fuel. Yeah. Yep. And fuel the creativity. So, you know, I, I, I've been very blessed, Mark, very blessed in my life to be able to have people around me that really care and give me good direction. And, you know, I'm not so stubborn that I wouldn't listen. Right. Sometimes it takes, it takes them two or three times to tell me, but so because sometimes you think you know better. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So over the, during, during that time, um, when you were picking and choosing, there were times where you turned clients away. They came, bands came to you and said, we'd like to do this. And it just didn't, not a bad situation. Timing wasn't right. Or yeah. that didn't Well, did I would occur. just say, you know, I mean, because again, you can sit with somebody after a while, there's only so many stories. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so many words that they can say that, you know, don't send up alarms. And I would, you know, just say, look, you know, I mean, either we have too much work and we can't take it. That's the yeah. easy way to get out of it. Yeah. Call us next time, you know, on your next album, reach back out to us. But right now we're just jam-packed, can't do it. Because we were small. I mean, we had like five people in the art department, two salespeople, and Bonnie answering phones and doing the books. We were a small company. We never wanted it to be big. Right. We never bit off more than we could chew. And maybe that's a bad thing because we never, some people might look at that and go, wow, you had all the opportunity in the world to grow and you didn't do it. You know, well, you know, you money stayed, was never really the important thing. And you I mean, stayed true to what you wanted to be as a, as yeah, a company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I can, I can tell right away whether it's going to be good or not. Now with and that I, said, yeah, keep, go, go ahead with that thought. But I have no, another I was question. I going to say why, if you know that it's going to be bad, why would you even get into it? In right, hopes, right. And, and I went through that phase in hopes that I could turn it around. And you never can. It never turned around, ever, any time that I tried that. Right. So again, being Italian, being a little more hard-headed than most, it took me a while to figure it out. Uh, it was like partners, I chose them. And, and I chose them because I never would be surprised at what would happen. And it always happened the same way. It failed. Yeah. And it, the first one's 14 and a half years. It was great, but it got bad toward the end. Second one was six years. The third one was six and a half years. And I kept trying to make it better, and it never got better. So finally, 12 years ago, I just said, screw that. I don't need any. The best partner I ever had is right here next to me, Bonnie. And sometimes I wouldn't listen to her. She would tell me, and I'd say, you don't know. You don't understand. You don't understand, <laughs> Frank. Frank is great. Meanwhile, Frank is ripping off the company, and he's a drug addict and alcoholic that can't deal with it. It takes a while to understand, you know, and I guess I was like these two guys that I talked about earlier. I was young and stupid, you know, and but if I had to do it over again, I would have listened more. But, you know, you never are able to go back and redo it. You never get a do over with the knowledge that you have now. Right. It always if you do it over, you get back there where you were stupid and you try and figure it out again. You never get a second chance to do it over with the knowledge that you have now. And that's the ironic thing about life, because you don't really understand all that until you get older. At least I didn't. I just, I'm a savant. I know how to do one thing, and that's what I do. And I've become really good at it. And it's taken me this long to get this good. So I wish I had another 20 years. I'm hoping, keep my fingers crossed, you know, but that would make me, but if I died tomorrow, I mean, so be it. I've made a mark. 
you know, Kilroy was here, and every generation, as long as you still have eyes and ears, you'll appreciate what I've done. That takes me back to the second part of the question I was going to ask you, and it's kind of ironic the way you went about that because you kind of toyed with what I was going to ask. And was there a client or a situation that you had to turn down, and then later on you look back and see where that that project went with someone else and wish, God, I wish we had that one? Yeah, I mean, there were some. But most of the ones that we actually entertain seriously, we got. Yeah. So, and, 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 but then the, the criticism of what you were saying came in on their next album that we didn't do. You know, we did 13 albums for Alice, but there were some flush the fashion and goes to hell. And some of those that come of a couple of our competitors did that were terrible. The stuff that we did to this day, I mean, the biggest merchandising and marketing that those guys have, our stuff that we did 50 years ago, you know, so that makes me, you know, think that what we've done will go on that way forever. And yeah, I mean, I had remorse later because the second album, Black Sabbath, another one that I think that the Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was probably the nicest cover they ever had, but yet we never did another one. You know, the Rolling Stones tongue people, whether it was mine or Pichetti, they say it's the most iconic, recognizable, you know, I, you know, symbol in the world. Um, but you know, I mean, they never use the same person twice. No. So that's how they stay fresh. That's how they stay new and relevant. Sure. You know. Now, you touched on something there that for a minute, and it intrigued me a, little, a bit about um, you worked with Alice on so many album covers, and then he went with someone else, and then he came back to you, and then he went with yeah. someone else. And then what prompted those departures? And then, then obviously, the return is the, the work wasn't as good as what you were doing, but what prompted the departure the first time you guys didn't work and he went with someone else? I don't Team. know. I really don't know because um, the transition from schools out to greatest hits after schools out, there was no animosity there. And there was never really bad blood or anything between Alice and Shep and I. I remember when we did, uh, we were working on Trash, I think was one of the albums. And um, I did this really crazy looking cover of this woman's leg with net fishnet stockings and it was a really, really trashy album. And Shep rejected it. And he, and he actually said to me, you know, I think that you've lost touch with the edge that we're looking for for Al. And that was after uh, Muscle of Love. And, you know, they went off and did something with a company called Rod Dyer, who was a competitor. And I ended up meeting him years later. He was always a competitor. And, and the, the albums were nothing. They were really, Whiskey and Lace, I think, was another one that Rod Dyer did. I think they realized it, too. That's why they came back. That's why they came back. And, and they came back the last time for the, the box set, Old School. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, right after that one was Welcome to My Nightmare 2. So they used us on both of those and then moved on to other people with Detroit Stories and some of these other covers that they've done. But, I mean, when you look at what people are buying on their merchandise and stuff, it's the stuff we did. And, again, I've never had any bad blood with Shep. I didn't agree with him. And I think that, you know, today I wonder if he was really in touch with what's going on now. You know, I mean, you tend to lose touch when you become secure. You know, it doesn't matter as much anymore. And I, I wouldn't challenge him on that, but I just wonder – you know, but then Alice has a lot of say that goes on it as well. You know, so as long as he stays creative and productive, I think, you know, it's just a matter of doing whatever Alice wants, right. you know. Uh, <clears throat> because you become friends with Alice on a personal level over all these years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, in fact, I was at the NAM show a couple years back uh, for a keyboard recording console, sound techniques. It was, a, it was an old board that everybody used in the recording studios, and these guys bought it and revamped it, put all this new stuff in it, and they launched it at NAM. And I did all the graphics and stuff for it, so they let me have a section of their booth to bring some artwork and you know, and bring traffic to their booth as well. And so I brought the stone stuff. I bought Welcome My Nightmare, and I had the Welcome My Nightmare painting on an easel, and there were people all around, and I was signing stuff, and Alice walked by because he was going to the sheer microphone booth where he was a... Uh, an endorsee of their product. And so he saw the Welcome My Nightmare piece goes up tall on an easel. He come running over, gave me a big hug. And, you know, we caught up for just a few seconds. And then he said, you know, come on over to the sure, sure booth later. and We'll catch up. And it was so many people around it. I didn't even want to bother with doing it. But right. yeah, we're still, you know, we're still good friends. And Shep and I are still good friends. You know, Toby is road manager and Shep's, you know, guy that handles Alice. We're friends. So, I mean, I think that they'll come back to me at some point. I think that they do because they know the value that I bring. And if they don't, 13 albums for Alice is plenty. I don't need to do any more. If I, if I don't do another one, that's fine. If I do, I love it. I love working with him. There's so much to work with. And I think a lot of the newer things that people are doing for him, they miss that. They don't drill down deep enough. They don't really get into the music and really come up with clever ways to do stuff. And I don't know whether it's the people they're working with or it's, you know, the group or whatever, but, you know, it just seems to always fall a little short, but, you know, and who knows, maybe that's just me being sarcastic. I don't, yeah. yeah, he's a, he's a very smart guy, yeah. you know, and he's very mellow, you know, he's exactly the opposite of what you think he yeah. is. <laughs> he's an introvert, you know, he's not an extrovert. He only becomes an ex. I remember being backstage at the forum and we were in the dressing room and he was putting on the makeup, okay? And the more makeup he put on, the weirder he got, the more sinister looking he got. And that snarling, you know, just doing facial expressions. And he was sitting there watching. It was like watching one of the old werewolf movies where, you know, Lon Chaney becomes, he's a, a guy at first and then he evolves into this, to this werewolf, you know. It was like that, watching Alice do that. So, so yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there, you know, there were other covers that they weren't as good. You know, I mean, good as far as musically released. The albums didn't do that well. The Doors album was one. It's to Haley Brothers. There's a few. Matthew Southern Comfort. There's a few bands that we did that, you know, didn't really soar. Good Thunder, another one. You know, I mean, there's a lot of those, you know. But the covers and the, and the graphics we did, I was always happy with. I was never really, although that's not true. There was a <laughs> the first Kane Roberts. You know who Kane Roberts is? He's a guitar player, bodybuilder. He, he plays with Alice. He took that blonde chick who left. He took her place in the band. And he was, and he had a, he had a guitar that we, we designed it, shot flames out and stuff. Cause he was like this bodybuilder guy. And so we, when he left the group, Shep was still managing him. So Shep had us design an album cover for him. And there was no budget. There was nothing. There was a few bucks and we had nothing to work with. And so we did this cover and it was just, it was awful. It was. It would be one of those ones that I would put right up there with, you know, this is one of the bad, the worst albums I've ever done. But, you know, Kane liked it. I wish I could have. It's always I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have had more money to work with. But there was no time and no money. I did a, a, a Fifth Dimension. I did a Fifth Dimension album. It was the greatest hits album. They gave us pictures of the guy, of the, of the group. 
And that's it. And it was like, I don't know, $1,000 or something to do it. So we did this kind of circus looking thing. And you know, it was okay. It wasn't great. But, you know, we also had to make sure that we didn't lose money, you know. And I, you know, I was one where, you know, let's just do it anyway. And my partner who handled the business would go, no, we can't do that because, we're, you know, we're not going to make any money. We're going to lose money. You know, and, and that, you know, money was, I mean, I think the most we ever got for an album cover was maybe $5,000. Really? I mean, the, yeah, the Black Sabbath cover we did with both those illustrations, sketches, mechanicals, everything, I think was like $4,000. Wow. And now today, those two pieces are worth $250,000, those two pieces, because they're done by Drew Struzan. You know, I've got lettering that was supposed to be used, it never was. So there's all these components to it. And the fact that Drew's the most collected illustrator in the world today. You know, when I first heard that, I thought, well, how? That's stupid. How could he be more collected than Norman Rockwell or J.C. Leindecker, for Christ's sake? The body you know? work or? Well, it's it's the, the subject matter. It's yeah. movie posts. You know, Norman Rockwell, an incredible illustrator, and did all this stuff for not only Saturday Evening Post, but for the Boy Scouts and all these things. It was never really exposed outside the United States. He was really kind of an American illustrator. Mm -hmm. J.C. Leindecker the same way. A lot of them, you know, Maxwell Parrish. They were all kind of, uh, Cole Phillips, they were all kind of American and limited and confined to the United States. Drew Struzan, his work was used in the world. When you saw the Raiders Lost Ark poster or ET, it was his illustration. They may have changed the language that it was printed in, but the art was the same. So he became the most collected illustrator in the world because of the movie posters. Over 250. He did to the movie poster industry what Andy Warhol did to fine art. He created pop art. Okay, He was the grandfather of pop art. Drew Struzan is the grandfather of the transition from photographs to illustration in movie poster world. And I'm going to so, say that Ernie Sheffalu is the grandfather of album covers, Mark. Ah, well, well, well I, I can live with that. So, so let me ask you this. Is the grandfather <laughs> of album you. covers? Oh, uh, yeah. If Absolutely. I can get my horn. <laughs> okay. is, is there a, a, a cover that you'd like to do? Is there a, an artist out there or a band out there that you'd like to work with that, that you never have or haven't yet? Oh, yeah. Beatles. Uh, oh, I, yeah, yeah. You know, I would have loved to have done a Beatles album. I would have loved to have done a Green Day album. Wow. I would have loved to have done an Eric Clapton album. I would have loved to have done not so much the new groups, none of the hip hop stuff. I'm, I'm really not into hip hop. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, and and you know, music has changed a lot. I'm I'm more like Eagles, Buffalo Springfield. I would have loved to have done, you know, covers for those groups. But you know, again, you can't get everything. And a lot of it was, you know, those groups would have their Pacific Pioneers that they worked. With. Sure. Yep. You know, and so there, you know, there's that part of it. I was the ones that I was able to do, I think were pretty incredible and blew my mind, you know, but yeah, there's always ones that I wish that, and I think more than anything, the Beatles, I would have loved to have done something for the Beatles because I was a huge, even when I did the Rolling Stones logo, it really didn't mean that much to me because it was just, it was another logo. I was a Beatles fan. I was Buffalo Springfield and, you know, it's a beautiful day. And all those groups from the, you know, from Northern California, Country Joe McDonald and the Fish, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, you know, Grand Funk Railroad, all those bands were ones that I really idolized. And I was a lot of them I was able to do. But there, yeah, there, there are several, you know, that I wish I would have had a chance to do. But 
again, you can't get everything. What's it know, cost? What's it cost to get you to to do an album cover nowadays? Now, what I do, and I get a lot of requests for that from people on Facebook, yeah. young people or people that have bands and they want a logo or something. It's hard for me to do that because I don't know where that industry is yeah. as far as money goes. So what I usually say is, tell me what you have to spend. You must have an idea in your mind of what you can afford. And if you tell me that, if I can make it work in any way, I'll do it. I can't imagine what he would make on, yeah. on Fiverr right yeah, now I'm if he sure. put himself out I'm there. Sure. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, but you know, what, what happens now, you guys, is there because of the internet, and because of past relationships mm. like Bert and some of these others, there's enough work for me to stay busy. Yeah. And the rest of that time is not for sale. That's my time. That's my time to spend with Bonnie. That's my time to enjoy the desert where we live here. It's beautiful. It's going to be 80 today. I mean, Son you know, what's, what's not to love? You know, it was 85 yesterday. It's a cold, rainy Seattle day here in Boston. Oh, yeah. No, I... You know, I'm now very happy as a clam right here at low tide in the desert. Returning to album covers, over the years as you worked with bands and you worked with their teams, when you immerse yourself into their culture and, and to learn about what they're after and what the band themselves want, how much time did you spend with the bands themselves? Um, it depends on the band. I mean, yeah. without, I mean, whenever whenever they're in town, they'll come by Pacific Ioneer or we go to the recording studio. Most times... If they weren't bands from California, they would be there to record mm -hmm. or rehearse either at SIR or one of the recording studios, of which there were plenty. Um, and so we would hook up there. They would come to Pacific Iron Year uh, a lot, uh, but not that much. I mean, we would deal more of, you know, they'd see the initial sketches and they would approve them. And if they weren't local, we would, we would message, or not message, well, messengers, there was no internet so there was no scanning something and sending it so we either went by messenger if they were local and couldn't come to us if they were far away we would just ship it we'd ship sketches to them they'd look at them we'd talk on the phone and you know they'd give their input and then we'd do another round of sketches or just go to finish art it got to the point where people we were working with would take the sketches they'd want the sketches they'd want drew to sign them they'd want me to sign them yeah. that happened a lot too and i would keep giving it all away because the more I gave them, the more work they gave us, you know? So it was like this, all right, well, it's a fair exchange. You give me work, I'll give you the artwork and the sketches. So we started photographing the sketches before we take them and present them. That's why on the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I have the sketches. I have the photograph of the sketches that I've made prints from and stuff, really good photographs of them, and they're gone. I mean, they wanted them, and now they're, you're not going to say no. And so Drew would sign it, I would sign it, whatever. They'd take them. You know, and uh, there were there were a lot of those that happened, a lot of sketches. But I still ended up with probably I have probably a thousand sketches of all these different projects, corporate and music, put away and catalog. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a different kind of time, and we just that's how we were. We didn't really put a price on what the thing was worth. So if it made them happy to get it, we gave it to them. You know, and then my partner after a while put a kibosh on that. I was giving away too much stuff, and he was very smart. He knew that. Someday these things would be worth something and we should hang on to them. And, yeah. and so we started doing that. Good. I learned to stop, you know, getting so depressed about all the stuff that I had given away and lost and started rejoicing in how much I was able to keep and how much I really had because I never really knew. It was all stuck away. Wherever there was a hole, I had, I had a fourplex. I had all four garages. So those were filled. And 
I never realized what I had saved and what I had until we sold the fourplex and moved everything to the desert about two and a half years ago. And I had an eight-month period where I was building a facility in our backyard to house everything. It's been eight months. That's how long it took to catalog everything, go through every piece and catalog it, and then bring it back, bring that back here, that written thing back here, and input it into a file. So now I pretty much know where everything is, which is really good. You know, right there at your fingertips. Ernie, over the years with the internet and all the, you know, innovations, your process for creating album covers must be really different from when you first started. Well, you know, not really, because what I did, the part that I contributed to was the concept. Okay. And that doesn't really matter how it's executed. Really, it's the concept. And then I would do lettering and I would art direct. So I'm basically doing the same thing. But now instead of having, a staff of illustrators, because at one time I think there were six of six illustrators that I could choose from to one guy who does all the finishing and he can do it in any of st- any style I want. So I do I still do the concept, I still do the sketch, I still do the lettering, but anything beyond the sketches goes to my computer guy who does it all in the computer and makes it look beautiful. This guy's been making me look good for years. And we worked together in the 80s. He kept getting when he was in college, he was a big music fan, a guitar player, and loved all the all the music. And he said every time I got an album cover, I'd look on the back, and there's a Pacific Ear credit. So I told my wife, Jane, when we go out to L.A., I want to call on this company. And he did, and I hired him that day. And we've been friends ever since. You know, that was in 1984. Yeah. And uh, he put in all his equipment there, and he does all my finishing. My part is basically the same. Uh, I don't have the luxury of six different illustrators, but I don't need them. You know, this guy can copy any style I want, and it's all done in the computer. So it actually makes it easier um, and and less time-consuming because he's really fast and he's really good. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, the, you know, pretty much everything for the last 11 years, you know, he's done. Since I decided I don't need any more partners, I'm just going to go off and do it on my own, which is a hard thing to do. I mean, I you know, even though I had had my own company and stuff, I always had a support team that I could fall back on that were better than I was. So I never had to worry about, well, if I came up with an idea and it didn't seem right in my head, but it was a good idea, but I didn't know how to finish it or what it was going to look like, I could go to Drew or I could go to Bill Garland or Joe Garnett and, and Carl Ramsey and show them a rough sketch and they would make it look beautiful. It was amazing. And I have that same luxury now with Bob Inglesey. We've worked together, like I said, since 1984. And we're like an old married couple. We finish each other's sentences <laughs> and we cut to the chase right away. It's great. There's not anywhere near... I, when we were when I was younger and we were getting started, I would every project, whether it was corporate or music, I would do half a dozen minimum ideas, sketches and stuff. Today, and that would take sometimes days. Today, if something takes me longer than an hour or two, I'm shocked because there's only so many problems, and I've got all the solutions. I just need to find the problem and fit the solution to it. Right. So it's much easier now. I built a library of solutions in my head. And it, you come to me with any project, and it's more than likely a project I've had before. So it's easier to get started right there. I Usually now I just do one thing and the client loves it, you know, because all the thought is in there. It's all thought about consistency and, and targeting and is it the right messaging and, 
and the look and feel and color, all that's already there. We're lucky enough. We have a logo that was made by Ernie for our special Under, under the, the Covers cover. with yeah. Ernie Shuffleu yeah. series. Well, I mean, how long did that take? It, it took me about less than 10 minutes to do the sketch, as rough as it was. Showed it to you guys. You liked it, and Bob built it. It was done the next day. Totally and it's I mean, it's really great. You know, I mean, it worked out really good, and not because I'm so naive to think that everything I do is great, but it, 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 it's perfect. When you look at it in the way... In the subject matter, or under the covers, I mean, it, it's just, it was perfect. And like I said, I had that idea that I suggested to you, but right away, when you guys said that, I mean, it was like perfect. Right. You know when it's right. You know, there's, there, I didn't right. go, well, I don't know, or gee, I like mine better. You know, I didn't have anything to do with what you guys did. No, what you did was great. It was better than what I was suggesting. I, so, I think I remember, if, if I remember correctly, your response was, that's salacious and sexy. Yes, that's it was I, I, just like that, <laughs> and, something like that. And the art and the artwork kind of looks like that. It's kind of hot looking, and yeah. it's right in your face, yeah. and it's and it does that perspective thing. You know, I mean, yeah. it just it was like it was perfect. Yeah. You know, and there are people that do what I do, and we would go to you guys. Well, that sucks. You guys aren't you guys aren't artists. What the hell are you trying to tell me how to do my job? I've never been like that. If you've got a suggestion that's better than what I have, that's great. And usually what happens is I'll give an idea and they'll have an idea and we try to put them together if they're good and, and it evolves. That's all part of the process. It's part of the creative process. People don't understand that. I've never done anything by myself. Everything I've ever done has been influenced by something, something or somewhere or whoever, not just me. It's more than just me. It's everything in the world around us. But each episode, they get under the covers with us. <laughs> they do, you yeah. Know? I mean, our Under the Covers series, Mark, with uh, Ernie Shefflew is unbelievable. Today, he was talking about all his album covers. He's done about 250 album covers. Big A body huge work. Huge body work. Yeah, in uh, his creative process. And he's extremely humble, always giving everyone oh. else credit of, of oh, everyone I mean, else that's part of it. Dig this. But I'm not washed up. I'm, I'm just getting started. I don't care. I can't help it if my body's 77. My brain is 24, so I think I'm just getting started. You know, you got to look beyond just how we look. I got to tell you, you're, you are just getting started, and this is Under the Covers with Ernie Sheffalo Part 5, and I think appropriately because of the, the body of work that you've had, we've spent probably the longest time talking on, on a subject in, in all five parts, and, and I think because of the topic being your album covers today, it's appropriate that we spent that that time on it. Um, and I think well, I appreciate it a lot. I oh, mean, well, I we, we, you can you, you want to talk about appreciating? Yeah. <laughs> look, look at us sit here and just listen to you talk all day. We, we, I could do this for hours. Well, um, I appreciate the stories. that. I have a tendency to to keep on talking. Well, it, you have enough work to talk about, so yeah. it, it's and a the, good thing. Uh, yeah, the and, I, and I, I, you know, I, I, when I start going toward that other funk, I take a look at what I've accomplished. Yeah. I look back and not egotistically, but I look back and say, I, I've made a mark. You know, and that's important. I don't care what anybody else says, whether they like me or not. It doesn't really matter. That's you know, right. it's how I feel about myself. You know, and I feel that I've accomplished pretty much everything that I've ever wanted to do. Awesome. Ernie, thank you so much for giving us the uh, the backstage info on all your, you know, fantastic works over the years. Not only corporate but you're with the music industry. I mean, it's really iconic and he's really a history maker. Oh, my God, yeah. No question about it. I'll tell you, it works both ways, guys. I mean, without you guys, I could never really get it out there. This is the first time I've really had a chance over a series of episodes to talk, because there is a lot. 
we can't thank you enough, really, for spending your time and, and coming on. And with that, we can't wait for the next part. Absolutely. Yeah, part six it. coming up. Can't wait to talk about that and can't wait to spend right, more time I'm talking ready to go. And hey, with you. Okay, let's rock and roll. Ernie, I'm going to beat him to it. I want to thank you for being our friend, buddy. <laughs> Son of a yeah, Thank you. I got so, it. Yeah. Mark quits. Mark quits. Where's he going? Where's he going? He's going.